Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand It's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand Our mothers all our junkies, our fathers all our drunks Golly Moses, naturally we're punks Gee, Officer Krupke, we're very upset We never had the love that every child ought to get We ain't no delinquents, we're misunderstood Deep down inside us there is good There is good There is good, there is good, there is untapped Welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, September 24th, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia. Janet Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select in many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Jenna Tessa Fox. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist and is the chief New York theater critic at Talkin' Broadway. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Morning. Good morning. So, uh, this morning is the uh, Broadway flea market, and uh, we we hope that everybody has listened to this podcast and gotten out to the flea market to uh, see if all of us have made it out there. This is your goal, is to get uh, selfies with uh, the four of us. So... (laughs) <laughs> if you can uh, if you can achieve that, uh, tag us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, first up in our reviews section, Peter, you got to the Huntington Theater Company in Boston to see Merrily We Roll Along. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Well, you'd never know uh, from the audience reaction that this is a show that was such a notorious failure. I mean, it's almost getting monotonous that every production of Merrily We Roll Along you see uh, makes you say, well, how come it didn't succeed way back when? And a number of reasons, of course, were there, especially uh, the preview period where there was a lot of chaos and changing this, that, and the other thing. In fact, my late great friend Mike Salinas swears that he was at a performance when um, Charlie... Franklin and Mary looked at each other and said, um, 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 and couldn't come up with the line. So I'm told, what do I know? You know, I wasn't there. But anyway, um, it had bad word of mouth back in 1981. And the smartest things that um, Hal Prince, Steve Sondheim, and all the others did was close it after two weeks because that made it a mysterious failure. If it had run 193 performances to half-filled houses, people wouldn't be interested in it, I swear. So now everybody has to fix it. You know, I can do it. I can do it. And there have been literally... Including high schools, I'll grant you, but literally 5,000 productions since 1981, here, there, and everywhere. So that's pretty wow. impressive. And uh, what this one is, is essentially um, a reboot of the one that was done in England that was shown in cinemas around the country. So if you can't get to Boston, don't feel too bad if you saw that um, 
live presentation, um, so to speak, that was uh, videoed. So it is that. Maria Friedman has uh, replicated it. And in fact, even the two uh, male leads, Mark Umbers and Damian Humbley, um, uh, who respectively played Franklin Shepard and uh, Charlie Kringas, uh, collaborators at least for a while, um, are in the production. I don't think anybody else from London came over, but at least those two are still there. So, again, if you can't get to Boston, don't feel too bad if you saw the video. All right. However, of course, there's nothing like live theater, and this one is um, really a very solid production. But here's the thing. I have never seen an audience react to this show as much as it's a musical comedy. For some reason, they found it funny. I'm even um, how did you get to be here, Mr. Shepard, which is meant as an indictment, uh, got a laugh. And I I wonder this is just a theory and I'm not saying I'm remotely right about this, but I wonder if it has to do with the overture because the overture is such a traditional musical comedy overture. Maybe it sets the table for that type of thing. I, I, I just don't know. But I'm telling you a joke about abortion, a joke about Vietnam got titanic laughs well i'm glad people enjoy themselves um but i do feel they may have missed the point about Mm. selling out and all that but as long as they had a good time what difference does it really make i do have a few quibbles that i want to bring up but uh they really are quibbles because it's a solid solid production and i'm especially especially in love um with amy doherty who i'm told is a boston actress who plays gussie and um gussie is the wife of producer joe Josephson, although she doesn't start out that way, she starts out as a secretary. She becomes his wife. She becomes a star. She winds up marrying Franklin Shepard, um, being at least a, a component of ruining his marriage. Um, and eventually uh, he cheats on her too. But boy, does this lady have a wonderful arc, tremendous arc. And I've never seen Augustine be so successful. Oh, and to be fair, though, you know, I, one thing that should be said uh, this is, after all, as everybody who's listening to this podcast, I'm sure, knows, not the Merrily that opened on. Broadway in 1981. They revised it. Uh, George Firth, uh, the book writer, and of course Sondheim, um, did some work on it. So um, I think it's a better show than the one that uh, played um, originally, which I saw at the first preview and at the final performance, final official performance. So um, it is a better show. Uh, I liked it then, by the way, but um, I do think it's a better show now. Um, So the thing is, let me go into a couple of nitpicks here, but I I wish that they'd be solved because it really... is strange to me why this um, had to happen. Okay. Now, the show is set um, in this production from 1976 to 1957. But, you know, the thing is, the audience doesn't know that when they come in, that it's 1976. Should they, should they be expected to? Yes, it's in the program. Yes, it's there. But how many people read their program beforehand uh, to really say, OK, let me see where I'm going to be? So I think people assume when they come in that it's time colon now. And the problem with that is when you hear 1968, you know, so wait, 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 50 years ago, what happened? You know, I mean, you know, so I think there should be a projection on the back wall stating that it's 1976 at show start. So, um, uh, because really, uh, they don't look 50 years um, younger <laughs> um, when the time comes for them to be in 1968. Now, I don't know if this is a mistake that a techie made. Um, it could very well be that somebody wasn't on the ball there or Friedman just didn't notice. But OK, in scene two, we're in an NBC studio. There's an NBC logo on the back wall. OK, and when scene three happens, we go to Frank's apartment. 
but nobody took the NBC logo off the wall, which struck me as really odd. Okay, similarly, scene four begins outside of Manhattan Courthouse, so they have uh, a great seal of New York in that same space. They use that space to put up logos of this, that, and the other thing to show you where you are. But at the end of the act, Frank is taking a cruise, and you can see him like walking up the gangplank type thing, but (laughs) the courthouse logo is still on the wall. So, uh, you know, little details like that really turn out to be bothersome, I think. Um, So so I do have uh, that issue there which I think is um, a bit of a problem. But listen, um, if you've never seen Merrily and you are within striking distance of Boston, this is about as good a production as you'll ever get. And if you wind up laughing through it rather than saying, ooh, 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 look what's happening to these people, that's fine with me. Um, it, it, it's something that really must be seen. And until they make a, uh, available uh, a DVD, a Blu-ray, a streaming, whatever, um, I, it, it, this Merrily really is uh, something worth seeing. I am surprised to hear about the audience reaction because I did see this production in uh, in the cinema, the Cinecast, and my recollection was that, uh, like most current, most recent productions of Merrily, that it, the emphasis was actually more on the darker aspects of it. And I don't remember our audience in the cinema reacting that way, but every audience is different, you know. Yeah, and you know, it was opening night and mm. I mean, you know, so it might have been you know, that type of celebratory feeling it's a, you know, season's greeting, a new season uh, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, you know what occurred to me for the first time that never occurred to me before? Okay, um, those who know Merrily know that the, the scene uh, that ends the show takes place when Sputnik is going up. Uh, for younger uh, listeners, that believe me, that was a big deal when uh, Sputnik went up, it was a Russian artificial satellite, and there was a lot of talk in those days about the space race and all that, and we were going to beat the Russians and all that kind of business. And here the Russians got a big jump on us, but you had to give them credit because they put a Sputnik in the air. Okay, why am I making a point of this? Because I finally realized that this took place on October 4th, 1957, and only eight days earlier, West Side Story opened on Broadway. And you know, 50, the, those eight days um, to a musical theater fan um, shook, <laughs> shook the world because you not only had West Side Story opening, but you also had uh, Sputnik. And who knew that those two events were turned out to be very significant in history, one in genuine history and one in musical theater history. So <laughs> that occurred to me for the first time. Peter, do I remember this incorrectly that uh, in, in reading about the opening of West Side Story that it wasn't? widely uh regarded when it first opened well my mistake well you know i I understand why you're coming off with that opinion you know even sometime has gone on record as saying um that it wasn't a hit the first time out it wasn't a smash hit but you know i i did research recently because this came up on another podcast i was on and when west side story (gasps) closed (laughs) wait what (laughs) (laughs) yes I'm such a whore. What can I tell you? <laughs> I haven't been faithful, James. I have, I've been found out. Yeah, it's in Australia. Does that make you feel any better? Anyway, okay. So, I got this hemisphere. Yeah, 
Yes, okay. you do. You, you have the whole thing, really. Uh, so anyway, um, <laughs> so um, the, the the guy who was talking to me said, uh, gee, you know, sometimes says it wasn't that big a hit. So at that point, I did research. And when West Side Story closed, it was the 22nd longest musical running musical in Broadway history. I mean, how bad can that be? You know, so um, granted, it's like 400th place now. I mean, because shows run so much longer. But back then, you know, 22nd, you know, one of the top 25. I mean, you know, that's pretty good no uh, it's it's become lionized that uh, it wasn't that big a hit but it certainly was a hit and the reviews were good i mean it didn't do well at the tonys it only won two uh one for choreography of course and one for the set which is kind of interesting um but uh no i mean west side story did well uh and um but it was the movie that put it over the top well that's what ba- i yeah that's yeah, what i was ba- just gonna say yeah, because the baby boomers were just coming of age in, um, in when that uh, movie came out in 1961. The baby boomers who were born in 46 were 15 years old. They were starting to date. Their girls wanted to see their uh, this romantic um, movie while the guys thought it was okay because at least they were watching juvenile delinquents. So it appealed to for that audience greatly. And, um, and that's really put it over the top. So commensurately speaking, no, it is true that the West Side Story movie was substantially greater than the West Side Story. Uh, stage show um, and Sondheim has gone on record as saying too they didn't get very many uh, cover recordings of the songs um, in during the Broadway run but uh, but it was a hit it's a hit it's a hit it was a palpable hit yeah I have some information on this because I'm doing as I mentioned on on this coming Tuesday on the night of the 60th anniversary of the opening of the show um, putting together a program at Feinstein's 54 below to celebrate that incredible momentous opening 60 years ago. And we're going to have um, some really great talent singing the songs, but we're also going to have Harvey Evans as our special guest because he was in the show as well as the movie. And I was just talking with him uh, and he said that actually he felt like the show became a hit while he was in it. He joined the company after six months and it, I guess I, you know, groundbreaking types of things like this don't always catch on immediately. It takes the public a little while to catch up with them. Uh, and that's what he said felt happened. But interestingly enough, um, the show, they I guess they thought it was maybe running out of steam, so they had booked mm-hmm. a, a tour. So what happened was that the show opened at the Winter Garden on September 26, 1957. Then it uh, briefly moved to the Broadway Theater for, I think, like two months, and then back to the Winter Garden. And then it closed there after 732 performances, which I think is considered the original run. But mm-hmm. then it did go on tour, and then it came back to Broadway, This you know, the same production, the original production in 1960 and then it ran another 240 performances at the Alvin and then at at the Winter Garden so it moved (laughs) all of those times it's amazing Um, it's absolutely amazing from a modern perspective to think of how often shows moved back then now they just Uh, so prohibitively expensive today that that almost never happens but so um, so you know first of all would you consider the original run 732 performances or would you add 240 to that I think that's significant but um, it's yeah I I do think that that's the case that um, and I'm sure we can think of several other examples of shows that are really kind of new and uh, uh, just groundbreaking and break the mold in several ways and they don't usually 
necessarily become smashes right at the beginning. That it, it takes a while for people to assimilate what's going on and to really appreciate them. Well, uh, in terms of uh, do we count it as 732 or do we count it as um, 9, what, 81? Um, in 1941, Joe DiMaggio had a 56-game hitting streak that was that was uh, broken by not getting a hit in his 57th. But then he had 17 more. Um, so is his hitting streak uh, 56 plus 17? Nah, I'm afraid it's 56. So uh, <laughs> I think we have to come with his story is 732. Uh, but of course, this this is a strange footnote in history because very few shows have done exactly, if any, um, I don't even know if any uh, else have, uh, can, can have that type of um, pedigree of uh, a long run and then coming back and having a, a substantial run uh, after uh, a tour. I, I don't think that happened very often. Uh, it might have happened way, way, way back when, uh, when the Schubert used to send out operettas and all that kind of stuff. But um, I'm not aware of it happening in so-called modern times. If 60 years ago can be considered modern times, that's up to the listener, I guess. So according to IBDB, the uh, West Side Story production opened on Broadway September 57, uh, went through June of 59, and then uh as Michael said, jumped theaters back and forth and then <laughs> opened up in April of 1960 and played right. through December of 1960. But the film came out in 61. And then there was another production in 64. Uh, that was at City Center, I imagine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, April 8th through May 3rd. So it was just a month. And then uh, so I, it did it did jump back and forth. But uh, something I never thought about um, – so those the two original Broadway uh, the original Broadway production and then that quick revival nine months later, um, which uh, seemingly seems like uh, a Jersey Boys jump to the uh, oh yeah 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 <laughs> jump, to, jump the to, the, to the New World, new stages, world stages that's coming right. up soon uh, yeah. right after being on Broadway uh, very quickly. Um, was there any uh, changes made from the original Broadway production into the film, and then did the film influence any changes back into subsequent productions? Do you know? Well, the the big the big question there mm-hmm. is the order of the songs, right. yeah. which uh, many people, including Arthur Lawrence, have been very vocal about uh, that they should stay as they are in the original and not uh, the reorder. Of the film, uh, lots of different opinions on that. Uh, Arthur Lawrence vocal. Um, imagine, <laughs> imagine. No. Yeah, I, I, I have to say I'm in the camp that believes that uh, the movie did it uh, better with Officer Krupke and Cool. It makes more sense to me yeah, uh, yeah. to do it that way. I've also heard there was something about scenery that um, it was a problem in the original. That there was even talk about doing that in the original Broadway production, but it couldn't be done. Um, it, it wasn't just a, 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 a artistic choice. So I've been told. I'm, I'm not saying that's true. I'm only saying that's what I heard. Um, but uh, on the other hand the movie did something bad by putting i feel pretty in a different place because it's really effective when that second act curtain goes up and you see maria singing uh, happily her life is just roses at that point and um it's really aside from a ballet where which is a fantasy uh, it's the last time we're going to see her happy for the rest of that show and um so uh so i do think the position of i feel pretty was a was a big mistake and you know i i wonder about this um it, 
Jerome Robbins, although he got an Oscar um, for uh, his choreography, the movie was fired from the movie. And I wonder if it had to do with that. I wonder if he said, no, Robert Wise, what are you, crazy? You can't put I, uh, I feel pretty there. I, I don't know. I don't know why he was <laughs> fired. But um, it, it is a good question uh, why that happened. Um, so I do think that that's um, a problem with the movie, though I do like the other decision uh, much better. I wonder, did they recreate the uh, choreography choreography in the movie from the stage production, or was it new choreography? Well, he had to completely restage it for, especially the the prologue, because they yeah. were actually outside, down, you know, on street. But uh, a lot of the moves are the same, and the steps, and then others were were different. The reason oh, that I, I asked that is because when. Uh, a play, uh, a musical, go becomes uh, gets transferred into a movie. If they don't write a new mu- piece of music for the movie, it doesn't qualify for any Oscars. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I. Oh yeah, if, but I don't think I don't think they yeah. have any kind of rule like that in terms of choreography. Well, they That's- should. <laughs> uh, and speaking of that, one of the greatest uh, moments of choreography in the movie comes with America, which was another improvement in the movie because having yes. uh, the, sh- the, the shark girls against the shark boys uh, in that sequence is far more effective than having um, the shark girls split into two different uh, sections. You know why? Because um, – you know, the guys have lived on the streets and they've really been um, treated very badly by the Americans. Well, the girls, I mean, think of it. Anita and Maria are in a dress shop. They're working. They have jobs. I'm not saying they're getting um, rich or anything like that. But it, and they're not being harassed because they're, they're women and um, not being harassed in the same way that the um, shark guys are. So the shark guys would be more bitter about America uh, than the, uh, the girls would be. So it does make sense to have that um, back and forth between them. So I think that's another improvement in the movie. Well, we're, sp- we're spending a lot of time on West Side Story, which is fine. Should. Yeah. But, but I, uh, you probably have heard, Peter, that that was the original idea for the show as well, that the shark guys were going to be in it. And I believe the situation was that they, at the time, they could not find uh, enough men to play the sharks who would also have the dancing ability that they of the people they wound up finding for the movie uh and because there is uh, at least one recording of west side story uh that claims to be the original score recording whatever that means but it does have the the men restored to it and i'm i'm not clear as to if all or some of the new lyrics for the movie were written directly for the movie by Sondheim, but I don't think so. I think they might have been pre-existing. That's something that I... He must have commented on that along the line somewhere, maybe in one of his books. I'll have to look that one up. Hmm. All right. So uh, 20, 25 minutes ago, we planned this show, and West Side Story never came out of anybody's mouth. <laughs> no, it's true. But it's that's true. awesome, because this is a great conversation about West Side Story. So next up, we plan to talk about MCC Theater's production of Charm, which uh, Jenna and Michael got a chance to talk about. And I'm sure we'll talk about Charm right now, and then who knows what will happen. So Jenna, why don't you get us started on Charm? Well, well, before we talk about Charm, we should really talk about the song Charming from Natasha Pierre, and we can get into that one. (laughs) (laughs) 
so yes, Charm finally opened. It's had several regional productions already. Uh, Philip Dawkins' play, very aptly named Charm. It's finally making its New York debut, directed by Will Davis at uh, the Lucille Lortel downtown. Uh, the play, to me at least, evokes Alan Bennett's The History Boys in a lot of ways. It's mm. uh, young people looking for guidance as they're growing up and they're getting different advice from different adults. And all of the advice is well-intended, but not all of it is helpful for each individual's uh, individual needs. The protagonist of the play is Miss Starlina Andrews, played by Sandra Caldwell. Uh, Miss Starlina is a 67-year-old black transgender woman who has survived 50 years of being her true self throughout very tumultuous times. And now she wants to share what she's learned with the next generation. And she's going to do this by teaching an etiquette class at an LGBT center. And she works with these younger people, many of whom are homeless or some of them are in the sex industry. She works to show them how to behave. She winds up butting heads with Dee, the non-gender binary director of the center, played by Kelly Simpkins. And Dee is a lot more familiar with the modern concept of gender identity. And she recognizes that criticizing manners can come close to criticizing personality. And these two adults begin to butt heads as they try to work to make the lives of the next generation better. Uh, Miss Starlina quickly picks up the nickname Mama. She has uh, very old-fashioned views on gender, and she adheres to old-fashioned gender roles and doesn't understand that people can find their own space on a gender spectrum. And there are some really fascinating moments where, at one point, she tries to teach the kids how to dance. And she says, boys go to this side, girls go to that side, and everyone freezes Mm -hmm. because they don't all go to the same – they don't know where they fit. They're still figuring it out. And to her, it's simple. You can change from one to the other, but you pick your place and you stay there. And it's this great little moment, very, very powerful, that shows what she believes, that men do certain things, women do certain things. And to them, everything is up in the air and you can choose your own way. And her lessons are helping them, but those lessons aren't necessarily right for every person in the room. And that's a really beautiful moment that uh, conveys that message very clearly. The play takes on some very weighty issues with a lot of wit and a lot of charm. Uh, Dawkins' script is primarily focused on all the things that make up a person's identity. It also takes on abuse, mental illness, uh, jealousy, homelessness, AIDS, a lot of other issues. And... To me, that was one of the play's biggest weaknesses, because in taking on so many of those topics at once, it's more than a two-hour script can really handle. I was glued to my seat for Act One, and I was wondering, how are all these storylines going to be resolved in one more hour? And a bit of a spoiler alert, they aren't. Uh, And those that are wrapped up were wrapped up a bit too quickly to be fully satisfying, and the play's end doesn't live up to the promise of its beginning. So I really hope Dawkins will take another stab at the ending before the play goes on. And it really should go on. It's a lovely piece and it has a lot to say about different generations and about all of the issues that I mentioned previously. Uh, but it does need, I think, a little bit of smoothing out. The The cast is lovely. Several of them are fairly new to uh, new to performing, according to their bios. Uh, they've had some experience, but uh, the play, the cast also 
does cover the spectrum of gender identity. Some people are, several members of the cast are transgender. Uh, Some are in the process of transitioning. It's, uh, and some have changed their names and some appear to have not. And it's really quite refreshing to see a very diverse cast. Um, Caldwell gives a wonderful performance as uh, Mama Darlena. She doesn't ask us to sympathize with her character's outdated views, but she does demand that we respect how much she has survived. She is very strong. She is very loving. And if her views are somewhat outdated, it's because she has survived so much and she's lived this long and accomplished so much. And I think it makes the character very complex and really fascinating to study. Uh, Hallie Sahar, Marquise Wilson, Laura Nee Walker, Marky Irene Divin, Jojo Brown, Michael Lors uh, make up the ensemble of uh, the motley crew of, uh, of students in the etiquette class. They all have very compelling stories to tell. They do a lovely job working as an ensemble. They have good, uh, great chemistry together. And I'm sorry, I think I may have left someone off the list. Oh, Michael David Baldwin, forgive me. I left off Michael David Baldwin. Um, they do really nice work together. They work very well as individuals and as a group. And it's a very powerful, it's a powerful play. It's not flawless. I think it needs a bit more fine tuning, but it has a lot of good things to say and it tells the story very well. All right, Michael, what did you think? Yeah, I agree with basically everything. We should mention the action of the play is set uh, just a few years ago in 2014 in Chicago. And this was inspired by the true story of Miss Gloria Allen and her work at Chicago's Center on Halstead. And she has been very much involved and supportive of this piece to the point where there's a flyer in the program that you'll get the playbill that you'll get when you go to see the play at the MCC theater at the Lucille Lortel. Uh, that's the venue. And the flyer says, uh, quote, I'm so blessed to have people come aboard to show the world that people do care and that trans lives matter. It doesn't get any better than this. So um, this is kind of uh, theater verite, <laughs> uh, apparently very much in this case, they, they did change her name, obviously, they don't call her Miss Gloria Allen. They call her Miss uh, Mama Darlena Andrews. But it it is supposed to be that person. What was so fascinating to me about this play is that it shows that there is so much disagreement, even within the trans community, the LGBTQ community, uh, about questions such as what pronouns should be used uh, by trans people, uh, whether they should identify, whether a particular individual needs to or should identify as male or female or neither. That is, uh, as Jenna mentioned, a a big bone of contention in this play. Um, If you are a trans person, should you take hormones? Should you have surgery? Uh, This this, uh, concept that Mama Darlena has of whether you should behave like a lady or a gentleman, as as as, as one can imagine, several people um, in the play don't even, you know, don't even know what that means, and and really don't like the the whole concept. Um, I do agree uh, with Jenna that there were some problems towards the end of the play. There's uh, there is a point where there becomes this huge disagreement between D. Uh, 
played by Kelly Simpkins, and Mama Darlena, played by Sandra Caldwell, as to uh, Mama Darlena's approach. And it becomes so acute at one point that Dee actually fires Mama Darlena. And then something happens, uh, which I can't reveal, and that sort of gets smoothed over in a way that I thought seemed a little too facile. But there are... um, Glued to my seat is a, is a, I think is a good phrase that Jenny used, and it applied to me as well for for much of the play because I do think the issues are so interesting. And one uh, one main thing is people can disagree about matters such as gender identity and pronouns and uh, hormones and all of that. Uh, but the question is, is it going to be a uh, dis- uh, an agree to disagree or a situation where people are be going to become very upset and start screaming at each other when they disagree on, on these subjects. Um, so many, um, so much has happened uh, in terms of uh, acceptance of trans people over the past several years. And I feel like it's happening extremely quickly in the scheme of things. And it's only natural that there be a lot of questions and disagreement. I just think it would be beneficial if people uh, try to understand each other and not necessarily uh, come from a place of anger and and uh, confusion and disagreement. I agree, Michael. It Really, it does seem like only yesterday that this wasn't even being discussed, and I'm so glad that the subject has been opened and uh, and people are coming to terms with it. So uh, so I look forward to seeing this play, which I'm uh, going to do tonight. And um, so you people have really whet my appetite for it. Great. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it. Okay, God love you. <laughs> so MCC's Charm is playing at the Lucy Lortel down on Christopher Street, and it's uh, through October 15th, so if you are interested in seeing it, get your tickets now. All right. Uh, so Peter got over to Signature Theater to see uh, Susan Laurie Parks's uh, second play in the Red Letter Plays um, called In the Blood. Uh, Jan talked about it last week. So Peter, what's your thoughts on it? Well, this originally was produced in 1999, and I don't know where I was, but I missed it. And uh, I'm sorry I did, because uh, then I, this time would have been my second time, and I would have liked to have seen it again, because I think it's truly terrific. Um, this essentially uh, started because Susan Laurie Parks wanted to investigate Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. And when the play began, I thought, oh, 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 I'm not going to like this because I don't like what she's done here. Because in The Scarlet Letter, if you read it in high school, which many did, um, Hester Prynne has had an illegitimate child um, named Pearl, who uh, she had actually by the minister in town, Arthur Dimsdale. And uh, that's a big scandal for her, and that's why they make her wear – these are Puritan times – make her wear a scarlet letter on her breast um, in any clothing she has. She must always wear the letter A um, uh, because she committed adultery as they see it. And, um, well, Susan Laurie Parks' character, Hester – no print, just Hester – uh, has five illegitimate children, and I thought, mm, no, this is not good because, I mean, one mistake is one thing, but five is, you know, quite another. I wish she hadn't made the references to um, Scarlet Letter because uh, w- that comparison becomes odious. And uh, if if we had no Scarlet Letter reference at all, uh, we wouldn't have this problem thinking about it and thinking the differences between. So she's a wonderful mother. That's what's so uh, touching about it. 
by the end of the play, she won't be such a good mother, but that's another story. But for most of the play, she is such a wonderful mother talking about her treasures, her joy. There are times, I will admit, when we see that she's saying it because she needs to, because she feels that this is the best way of approaching it. Yes, that does happen. And that's part of the magic of this play, the fact that she means it is sometimes and sometimes she doesn't because anybody who's a parent knows that when you have a child, let alone five, when you have a child, you are working for someone else. I mean, you have a boss, you have a judge, you have a jury um, ready-made, and it just happens that way. And the kids, of course, are, are, are well defined as having differences uh, of opinion and personality and outlook and all that. So that's very effective. It's so poignant when um, she's scrambling to get the kids something to eat. And um, they say, Mama, you're not eating. And she says, oh, I'll eat later. And we know what that means. She's not going to eat at all. So there is a parallel with the Scarlet Letter in one instance because um, the preacher, uh, soapbox preacher, turns out to be the father of one of her children. Um, It almost looks later as if there's going to be a happy ending. I'm not going to say too much about that. But uh, the happy ending turns sour very, very quickly. And it's um, not unlike what happens in Sweet Charity, as odd as that may sound. But uh, what happens after that really is uh, quite powerful. And I really do believe that this is a play tremendously worth seeing. And it's got a terrific, terrific, terrific production. Um, Beautifully, beautifully done all the way around. And um, I I really have to give credit to um, the entire cast. But more to the point, there really is a tremendous performance by the woman who's playing Hester. Um, and um, her name is Saycon, S-A-Y-C-O-N, Senblo, S-E-N-G-L-B-O-H, S-E-N-G-L-B-L-O-H, sorry, B-L-O-H. Um, I don't know if that's, I'm pronouncing it correctly. I bet I'm not, but it's a tremendous performance, the best I've seen so far this new season as an actress in a play. So, so this is a, a powerful experience, and I am very glad that I had a second chance to see this play. And uh, I, I hope the people out there will see it too. All right. So uh, next up, we have um, Jenna. You went up to the Stratford Festival up in the uh, north lands of Canada, and you got to yes. see both Twelfth Night and School for Scandals. So tell us about those. Uh, if anyone listening has not been to the Stratford Festival, go. It's still running for another month and start making plans to go next year. It's always a lovely, lovely festival with fantastic first-rate theater. And you can see an awful lot because every they have four different venues and every venue every day has a matinee and an evening performance. So there is always something to see. Uh, start with the School for Scandal. Uh, the play, uh, it's Richard Brimsley Sheridan's classic. Uh, if you don't know it, you should. It's an old school restoration comedy that uh, covers two different plots, a strained new marriage between Sir Peter uh, Sir Peter Teasel and his young wife Lady Teasel who never gets her own name she's just Lady Teasel and at the same time two brothers uh, the surface brothers who are judged by their surfaces are uh, there's a question about which of them should become the heir of their uncle Sir Oliver who's just come back from several years in India 
and he decides to go undercover to find out which of his nephews uh, should be his heir. Meanwhile, Lady Sneerwell is uh, in a relationship with Joseph Surface, and they're placing blind gossip items about the Teasels, trying to get the Teasels ward Mariah and uh, Joseph's, uh, and sorry, Charles Surface, who are dating apart. It's it's as complex as a restoration comedy can get, and it's over the top and very silly. Uh, the play is you know, very funny enough in its own right, but uh, director Anthony Simolino, the artistic director for the entire festival, he does a really lovely job of connecting it to the present with plenty of references to our own issues. Uh, the prologue is presented in modern dress by uh, Garrett Wynne Davies, who plays Sir Peter, as he's putting on his restoration uh, costume. And, but he has a cell phone in his hand, is snapping selfies as he's talking. And all of the gossip that we see on Twitter and Facebook is connected to all of the gossip being spread around in the play. Uh, Sean Spicer gets a shout out in one line. They sneak that reference in as everyone's gossiping about the misfortunes of all the people they know. Someone mentions, and then there's Sean Spicer, and the entire company groans. Uh, <laughs> a... Uh, the back wall is constantly filled with projections from a designer named Nick Bottomley. And if he's working first at Shakespeare Festival, I'm guessing that's a, a pseudonym. It mm-hmm. has to be right. Nick Bottomley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. In any case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it, Mr. Bottomley, if you're listening to this and, and you do exist, I, I'm, I'm sorry. If, if that is your real name, I should say I am sorry. Uh, they present the stories as a, a take on social media and tabloids. They draw really good parallels between the scandals of the past and the present. Constant projections of the uh, the show's scandals done up as tweets or Facebook posts or tabloid headlines. Very, very well done. So nice projection work. Uh, Julie Fox designed all of the costumes, the scenic design and the wigs all very era appropriate and they all deserve praise. It all looks like a cupcake. I was really impressed by the walls. Uh, Something silly to notice, but the (laughs) walls of the stage were constantly moving uh, from scene to scene. You don't see people walking in to move the scenery around. It's all done automated. And again, for a play that's so much about what's happening behind the scenes and what we see on the surface, I thought that was kind of a nice touch that everything on the stage looks like it moves effortlessly when obviously Julie Fox designing this highly technical set must have done an awful lot to make that come to life. So I don't know if that was meant to be a commentary on the play, but it certainly worked. Uh, The cast is adorable. I mean, they're all highly trained classical actors. Uh, Garrett Wynne Davies, uh, plays Sir Peter Teasel. Lady Teasel is Shannon Taylor. She's very charming and funny. Uh, the Surface Brothers, Tyrone Savage, Sebastian Hines, are uh, similarly very funny. I really was impressed with uh, with Joseph, who's supposedly the uh, the good brother. And he doesn't play the part as a sneering, conniving hypocrite. He seems to genuinely believe that he is a good uh, good person even as we see him starting to do really terrible things. He never camps it up, and he seems genuinely bewildered as his lies are uncovered that he hasn't done anything wrong as far as he's concerned. He's just doing what he has to do to get what he wants. And I thought that was a really nice take on the role, that he doesn't see himself as a hypocrite. 
he sees himself as just doing everything necessary. Uh, his brother, uh, uh, sorry, his bar- brother Charles, uh, Sebastian Hines, very nice. He, he doesn't get quite as much good material to work with, but he gives a very good performance. Uh, Brent Carver, Tony Award winner Brent Carver, uh, is in a fairly small part as a servant who helps all the uh, plot machinations move. And again, it's always lovely to see him on stage. He doesn't get a huge amount of material, but he's very funny when he does get some good zingers in. It's a lovely production. Anyone who's a fan of restoration comedy, this is a really good take on a classic. It's got high energy, uh, good wit, and it's... They does a very nice job of being feeling very relevant for our times. You so. know, this was George Washington's favorite play. No and kidding. I, oh, yeah. And I often wonder if they put that outside the theater. My favorite play slash George Washington. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it would have been good, a good idea to do so. But, um, yeah. It would have been. I had no idea this was his favorite. It's, oh, yeah. It was written in, I know, uh, 1777. And they project that you know, as one of the first of... Uh, Nick Bottom's projections, Nick Bottomley's, forgive me, his uh, projections. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's de- it definitely takes place in uh, the Restoration, or not the Restoration, I'm sorry, in uh, 77. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm mistaken. This is not a Restoration comedy. It was written in 77, but I, I was mistaken. I used the wrong terms. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to... Uh... See if they if uh, Stratford Festival ever does uh, something rotten. Yeah, I know. I was thinking the oh, same thing. I have to really? admit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they should. I, they I should. think they should too. Absolutely. I think everybody should. Me too. Oh, I, I can't wait to see it again in whatever mm-hmm. incarnation we get to see that one more time. So funny. Yes. Yes. All right, Peter. You got over to the Women's Project to see One Night Only. So tell us about that. Well, um, I wish it were one night only, and I wish it had been the night before I had gone, because this was really agony to me. And um, I I will concede that there are many people who like this. So uh, as long-time listeners know, here I come out with, I'd much rather you have a good time uh, than um, agree with me. But um, I found this really uh, amazingly painful. Um, For one thing, it's one of those things where they say, okay, stand up, get out of your seats, you know, um, do this, do that stand on one leg, literally. Um, You know, that type of thing drives me crazy. It seems to be, um, well, you can't say it's a play. It really isn't. And um, if if you're the type of theater goer who feels uh, you want to get more for your money by staying in the theater a longer time, this is going to disappoint you too because they make a big point of saying it's 64 minutes long. And every now and then they tell you where you are in the show uh, so you know exactly how much time you have left. I mean, it's sort of like when you go to a musical that's really terrible and in the second act you start checking to see how many songs you have to go before you can get out of the place. So they, they sort of take care of that there. But for the first six minutes, you see women on uh, two women, uh, the entire cast on on treadmills, uh, just doing treadmill exercises. It seems to be um, a, 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 I'm, I'm looking for another word for play, um, an event um, that deals with human endurance, because there's talk about how these women have um, 
set a record of spinning around 108 times. And will they be able to do it 109 times now? Well, in fact, they can't because um, every now and then they just stop. And the guy who's on the microphone backstage who's counting stops and waits for them to catch their breath and then they go on. So I don't, you know, I would think that it would be um, 109 without stopping. But, you know, what can I say? There's also a scene where they pull somebody out of the audience. They bring out a microphone and they have a person read a script which tells you about all the aches and pains and kidney stones that these women have had in their lives. So I I guess it has something to do with endurance. I guess it has something, but good Lord, um, you know, I, I I was pretty bored by it even before they made me stand up and stand on one leg. Um, so, um, uh, 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 but again, a good times for you. So, and you know, the women's project does wonderful stuff. So obviously, um, either I don't get it or simply I get it and I don't like it. <laughs> That's fair. We don't have to like them all. I'm afraid not. All right. You also got a chance to see Small World at 59 East 59. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, um, a much better experience here, to say the least. Um, uh, This is a play by Frederick Strapel, I think is how his name is pronounced. And um, he's done a very clever thing. He's uh, looked at a situation that actually happened when Walt Disney, yep, that guy, um, was talking to um, Igor Stravinsky the Russian composer, and because he wanted him for his new project, Fantasia. And um, the thing is, you know, this is going to be a risky venture, this Fantasia. Uh, it's not going to be anything like anything he's ever, anybody has ever seen before. And that excites Walt Disney, who always wanted to um, break the mold and, and, and remake um, a new um, piece of art. So um, Igor Stravinsky is the guy he wants. Now, Igor Stravinsky uh, thinks that this is slumming if he takes this job. Uh, you know, after all, he's um, illustrious and uh, will uh, his music be corrupted by Walt Disney? And so that's the conflict in the play. But I'll tell you, it's really quite funny because Walt Disney is so single-minded and Mark Shanahan delivers a phenomenal performance as Walt Disney and even looks a little like him. Not a lot, but, uh, you know, it's it's hard to get that type of thing right. But uh, enough that you really um, go with the ride and say, yeah, this is Walt Disney. Uh, to be frank, I have no idea what Igor Stravinsky looks like, uh, looked like. But um, anyway, the guy who's playing him, Stephen D'Ambrose, is excellent as well. It's 75 minutes long. There's no intermission. I will tell you, the audience that I saw it with thought it was the funniest thing in the history of mankind. They just went crazy over it. The applause at the end was my favorite type of applause. It starts, it builds, it goes up to a peak. You think it's not going to get any higher. It goes down, but nope, nope, nope. It's going to go back up again uh, because the people loved it so much. So um, it, it really is quite, quite funny when it's funny. And it turns out to be touching when it needs to be touching as well. So I recommend it highly at 59 East 59th. It's in uh, the small theater upstairs. And um, so I guess seats aren't going to be easy to get, but um, I'm very glad for the playwright because he's really done a fine job um, by taking this little piece of history and making it uh, into a very entertaining evening. 
Uh, and this is a Penguin Rep uh, production. Oh, yeah, Penguin Rep, a very nice theater um, upstate, uh, Stony Point, New York, I think. Mm-hmm. Joe Brand, uh Cotto uh, has been doing phenomenal work up there, one of the greatest artistic directors I've, I've ever seen because um, whenever I go to a, up there and I see a talk back, when he's uh, looking at his audience and um, pointing to people who want to ask a question, he doesn't just say, you, you. He says, Harold, Charlie. Susan, he knows the names of his subscribers. I think that's really terrific. Uh, a, a magnificent uh, guy, very well directed uh, play here. Did a fine job. So, um, and Stony Point, New York. Where is it? I mean, who knows? And yet he's been in business uh, for <laughs> decades and shows no signs of stopping. So, uh, a, a really uh, great, great artistic director. Have you been up to the Stony Point uh, Theater? Any times. Um, yeah. Back in the '90s, I started. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's uh, it's a pleasant ride up there too. Uh, so yeah. um, it's uh, it's well worth investigating. And um, I believe I could be wrong about this. I think he only does new plays. Um, at least every time I've gone, it's been a new play. So, um, uh, and when I look at you know what's coming up, it seems to be a new play. So I, I may be totally wrong about that, but it seems whenever I go up there, I'm seeing a new play. I've gone up there and made a day of it because they have uh, great apple picking farms around there and they make fresh apple pie, not at the theater, but in the apple orchards near there. So that's always a a fun day if you get some good weather. James, you'll excuse me. I'm going to take a cab right up there now. They sound great. Good for you. Thank you. Wait, Peter, before you go, two quick (laughs) things. Two quick things. Yeah. Uh, you and I have spent a little bit of our time, although not together, in the town of Red Bank, New Jersey, uh, at the Count Basie Theater. And uh, Count Basie, they, uh, the Count Basie Theater just uh, broke ground on a $23 million renovation. Uh, and so I, in these days of fiscal cuts in the arts and things like this, for folks to get together and put $23 million down to build a new theater in Red Bank, New Jersey, that's a great thing. I'll say um, I had no idea that this was happening. Now tell me, um, it's uh, are they staying in their spaces or yeah. starting from scratch? No, they're, they're, staying... te- they're going to tear down the theater and rebuild uh-huh. it. Uh, they have beautiful, beautiful plans in there. Seems like uh, a lot of uh, New Jersey natives, like uh, – uh, little Stevie from Bruce Springsteen's band and uh, uh, Stevie Van Zandt uh, are getting into the picture as well to raise money and build this uh, tremendous, beautiful new arts center. They're saying that it's going to have uh, – the theater itself, I think, is still going to stay around 1,500 seats or so, but they're saying that the entire complex is doubling in size. Uh if nobody's been to Red Bank, New Jersey, it really is a swing in town. It really is a terrific place. And Two River Theater Company there. Yeah. A phenomenal organization. And uh, while I haven't seen their current production of A Raisin in the Sun, I'm told it's magnificent. Yeah, apparently that's what I'm hearing from everybody. Hmm? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Red Bank is great. And they have really, really good vanilla pancakes at the diner there on Main Street. Oh, couple my blo- God, you know all these good foods. <laughs> 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 so what is it not as big as I am? <laughs> oh, I am. I haven't seen you in a long time. Oh, that is true, so. James. <laughs> <laughs> when we see each other at the theater, we wave. On and... the other hand, <laughs> you haven't seen me in a long time either. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So uh, before we wrap up for the morning and uh, get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, you can automatically download it. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is the iHeartRadio app, uh, Google Play, um, Stitcher. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts and tune in on your Amazon Alexa as well. Um, contact information for Jenna, for Michael, for Peter, for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com. It's links to some of the things we've talked about today, including uh, the Count Basie and uh, Joe Brancato at Penguin Rep and all the other stuff that we talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? I do, but first I want to give apologies to Stephen Garvey for leaving off his name of those who knew that Arnold the Pig made a cameo appearance in the film of 1776. So my apologies to Mr. Garvey. Mm. <laughs> the question last week was, what does Patricia Morrison of Kiss Me Kate fame have in common with a musical from the 80s that ran one performance? And uh, the musical that <laughs> ran one performance was Onward Victoria about Victoria Woodhull. Um, who has had many a musical written about her. In fact, my friend Richard Norton loves to say, I never miss a Victoria Woodhull musical because there have been so many of them. Anyway, one of them was called Winner Take All. It was produced in 1976, supposedly for Broadway. Um, it was it opened in Boston. It played four performances. Of course, I was at one of them. And um, it, it was it – was, you could tell that these people had seen every hit musical that ever was and tried to replicate it. But it was about Victoria Woodhull, and Patricia Morrison uh, played Victoria Woodhull. And um, Janet Blair, by the way, was her sister, Tennessee Claflin. So on with Victoria, which we're in one performance at the Martin Beck, did make it to town uh, a few years later. But uh, winner take all did not. Um, so that's the answer to that one. The only person to get it was Carrie Winslow. Uh, so I guess people found that one hard. Let's see if they find this one hard. A commercial comedy opened on Broadway in the seventies and didn't last too long. The company it mentioned in its title has ever since been steadily failing. And so it's been retitled when it's done in stock and community theater, which it does get productions of. It's kept the first three word of its title, but has replaced the last two in favor of a more successful company. What was the original name of the play, and what is it now? All right. So wow. if you have an idea about that, uh, let me know. Well, you can let us all know, <laughs> because I have no idea. Uh, trivia at BroadwayRadio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right path. So on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.